You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Today's Shut Up Evan is sponsored by Otherworld. Otherworld is changing the breakfast and dessert game with out-of-this-world delicious plant-based pancake, waffle, and brownie mixes that taste almost too good to be true. Their plant-based mixes are filled with fruits, veggies, and superfoods, and made with only clean and recognizable ingredients. It's an amazing and delicious way to sneak veggies into your diet. Each recipe takes less than five minutes to make, plus no more dealing with messy eggs, butter, or any other ingredients. My faves include the banana chocolate chip pancakes and waffle mix, which contains hidden cauliflower, banana, and dates, and their limited release vanilla chai pancake and waffle mix with hidden zucchini, dates, and homemade spices. Shut Up Evan listeners are getting 20% off all products. Go to eatotherworld.com, that's eatotherworld.com, and use code SHUTUPEVAN for 20% off all products at checkout to enjoy some guilt-free deliciousness. Can I just ask? Shut up, Evan. I'm curious. Could you shut up, Evan? One thing I was thinking about. Shut up, Evan. So there are some rumors out there. Evan, shut up! Is it okay if I just ask? Shut up, Evan. Okay, but can I just? Shut up, Evan. I didn't even say anything. Hi, good people. It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up, Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I'm joined once again by my co-host, Sean Ross. Sean, good morning. How are you feeling? I am good. I turned 37 last week. Oh my God, Sean. (laughs) Fuck, I'm so sorry. (laughs) No, this is the thing about birthdays. I don't care. I don't care about birthdays. I feel very much like my opinion on birthdays is summed up by the Don Draper quote from Mad Men where he tells Peggy, you're 20-something years old. It's time to get over birthdays. Mm. You know? Um but anyway, that's what's that's what's new with me. So was there any celebration of any kind? Or Yeah, just... I did a karaoke night with my friends. Okay. Yeah. You know, it sounds like to me you're giving, do you remember Buffy's season two birthday where she doesn't want to celebrate, so they're home watching the old black and white movie. Mm. Joyce puts the candle in the cupcake and Buffy says, let's just let it burn. Yeah. I feel like that's you. Yeah, that's very me. Well, happy 37th birthday. Oh, thank you. I think uh, bolstering things for you is the fact that 37 is like not a milestone birthday. Totally. So I feel like it'd be harder to get away with, you know, doing nothing like 40. You know, three years from now. Yeah. How do you feel about your 40th birthday? I don't really care. I haven't really thought a whole lot about it. 
it's that one's I don't think it's gonna be like a big milestone but it starts to become that thing where it's like I remember my parents turning 40 you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I, I was, I distinctly remember that. And so that becomes like maybe a little bit of a crisis. I don't want to say a midlife crisis, but a crisis of some kind perhaps or not. Mm. Yeah. How are you? You were just in Paris. I was just in Paris. I, I got back last night. Um, It was fantastic. You know, I have to say this is a weird time within the grief process. I remember reading, um, a thing about the boyfriend of one of the the slain victims from that Colorado shooting a few months back. And he wrote like a, a piece, I think like on Substack or something, talking about the loneliness that happened in the weeks after the death because, you know, the death of his, his partner became national news, right? Like everyone was like identifying the victims of the shooting and talking about them. And it was big in the conversations, especially within the LGBTQ plus community. And then as life is wont to do, it continues on. And so, whereas other people resume to their normal lives and stop talking about that headline, he is still in the grief process of losing his partner. I feel similarly where it's like, now that the event of the memorial is done, there's not a next thing that happens, right? Like my extended family have all gone back to their lives. We do not have a plan, you know, the next time we'll see one another. And even like now it's like, I don't talk to my brothers like that regularly. I mean, we're, we're, we have great relationships, but now all of a sudden there's that sort of like that text message, just checking in on you. How are you doing? Mm. But it feels very different to be like, emotionally available weeks later because the emotional availability in the days after came so easy because we were Mm. all sort of so broken open. And so there's that balance now of like still being within the grief process, but not being granted the grace of like life allowing your grief in the same way. So I'm reconciling with that. And, and part of that was like going to Paris and and going to Paris Men's Fashion Week and having this extremely ritzy experience while all of a sudden I'd be like walking along the Seine. And I think people that have lost people can relate to this feeling where you'll be like in a total normal moment and then you'll have a flash of like your life with your dead, you know, whether it be partner or, or parent or what have you or you know just these memories will flash before you and then you 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 don't sink you kind of like for a moment you flash and then you have to find yourself out of it i had that happen a few times and it's also very weird to reconcile like not only like going back to life but going back to like a very extreme version of my own life i'm not always you know flown out to paris and attending yeah. front row at fashion shows um although i'm totally down to continue to do that that could that could certainly <laughs> be my life Yeah, but like top level, I would just say like I am a really big – I love learning about hotels in various cities and one of the best and like little known aspects of the world of fashion is getting to travel and stay at some of the nicest hotels that you would never even consider. Not you, you being you and I, but just the majority of people (laughs) No, you can say me. (laughs) Okay, you, you, Sean, 37-year-old Sean, (laughs) you, Sean, me, Evan, uh, I would never even look at a hotel like this because why do I need to know that there are hotels out there that offer this that's in a price range that's not even something I would consider? And yet on these trips, you get to stay in these hotels. And it's funny how quickly 
I can only speak for myself, I become accustomed to these things that I thought were so, you know, for the rich and famous. Suddenly, once I have them, I'm, I expect them. And that's a horrible mm-hmm. quality. Um, but, you know, it happens for 48 hours, and then you return back to your normal life. But I have to tell you, this is not like, this is not a, a humble thing to say. I loved having a butler. I loved <laughs> having a butler. <laughs> Sorry. Back up. <laughs> you you have a butler at the hotel? Is the butler just for you or for multiple rooms? So it's called the Creon for people that don't know. And it's like... It could not be more centrally located. You're, I mean, from everywhere that we were going in this trip, everything was, you know, 20 minutes away. Um, You're in walking distance of the Seine and the Louvre and the, you know, the, what's that big tower? Oh, the Eiffel. Yeah. You're in walking distance of that one. Um, And people just line the hotel, I would say not 24 hours a day. And I think this is probably due to it being fashion week, but like there are people just lining outside the hotel waiting because there were a lot of famous people staying there. I mean, we ran into uh, Jared Kushner and Carly Kloss. We ran into Aaron Piper from uh, Elite. Uh, What's her name? Uh, Bones and all. Uh, Taylor Russell was staying there. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And, 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 there's like sort of this threshold where it's like there's this craziness outside, but as soon as you get in and you have to show your uh, your uh, room key every time you go in because they don't want sure. anyone slipping in. Um, yeah, it is definitely ritzy. So the butler, it's a virtual butler. Uh, you are assigned a butler, but obviously, because, and it's 24 hours, so they obviously trade off. Like, you don't, like, the, the person who is your butler is not always the same. Right. But I will give you an example. So I went to a party on um, I, on Saturday night, where, by the way, I met Will Sharp from the White Lotus and had a half an hour long conversation with him, which was super interesting because he doesn't have social media. Um, ah. So I was introduced to him as this person who was making memes of White Lotus all the time that went viral. But like, what does that mean to someone that doesn't have social media? He doesn't have a clue. Yeah. So we had a great conversation. It was really fun. Did you find out what he did with Daphne on the island? That's funny. You mentioned that. We talked a lot about that scene specifically through the lens of him being a director himself. He's more a director than an actor in actuality. And we talked about the idea that like, why, how people, fans feel like they have access to that conversation where it's like, it's really private for an actor to sort of, you know, think about the things that take place in the world of the play or the movie or TV show that we don't see. And yet that's become such a big talking point. So we talked about sort of not what happened on the island, but the fascination around that. Mm. He did tell me that filming that was very funny because apparently as soon as they walked out of frame, there was a giant fence. So whereas we see it as like them walking off and we see them like walking along this beautiful shoreline toward the island apparently they just like literally stepped two feet up off the where they were sitting and then they were just like hitting up against a fence which is very appropriate but he was wonderful i chain smoked cigarettes with kit connor from heartstopper um which i loved manu rios was there and so i went out of my way to try and bump elbows with him but i did not speak to him i could not work up the courage, but back to the butler. So I leave there, uh, this party at like 3 a.m. and I got home and I'm off my, uh, my new year's diet when I'm in Paris, right? You know, it's like I'm in Europe, 
you know, dry January, took a pause, et cetera. Uh-huh. And so I got home and I was like, it's 3 a.m. I want we were, Bailey and I were going to watch The Traders US. Um, mm-hmm. We downloaded it so that we could watch it in Europe. And we were like, listen, we need food. So we texted the butler at 3 a.m. and asked if they could make chicken fingers. And this is, again, the butler, they can do whatever you want, right? Like, you don't have to look at the menu. And so I had chicken fingers to my room by 3.30 a.m. from the butler I'm not like I know this is not like a a wonderful thing to share, um, but it happened, and I'm I'm not proud of it, but I'm glad it happened. Yeah, yeah. So what a unique experience. Yes, yeah. So that was Paris. So if you ever find yourself in Paris, I would advise uh, if you can afford to stay at this hotel, my God, do it. But if nothing else, uh, if you, I imagine when it's not Paris Fashion Week, you can get in more easily. Just go check out the lobby if you can have a meal there. I mean, it is truly just, uh, it's a stunning, stunning hotel. Creon, Creon. Um, okay, but from Butler's to Barbara Walters, you know, I had wanted to have this conversation closer to her death. Um, but, you know, there was a lot going on. We didn't quite get to it. But I am particularly excited for you and I to discuss the legacy of Barbara Walters because I feel like you and I are both super fans of Barbara. Um, let me ask you, you know, we knew her death was coming. She was very, very old. And as now confirmed by Ramin Satuta in his piece for Variety, she was suffering from dementia for quite some time. She's not been in the public eye, I think if it was six years before her death. So again, we're not like sidelined by this. And yet I have to say from my perspective, I was pretty disappointed by the retrospectives in general. And I'm not even talking about the view necessarily. I'm more just talking even about like the New York Times obituary. I just like want more celebration of her legacy a la what I think someone like a Betty White got. So um, what were your thoughts sort of around the reaction and the in memoriams for Barbara Walters? Yeah, well, I think that the problem was, I think that her death came on, what was it, the day before New Year's Eve? And so I think the timing that when these things happen over the holidays, I think things sort of get like lost in the shuffle where if this had happened, say, today, I think maybe the response would have been different, possibly, uh, especially because of how quickly the news cycle moves now. I just feel like uh, s- there were some lost opportunities there because of the holidays. But I do think that I was surprised, actually, generally, uh, the reaction that I saw, at least online, because it did feel like a lot of people were talking about it, where I thought that because she had been out of the public eye for so long, she had been off of our TV screens for so long, I did think that maybe people had kind of not forgotten who she was, but maybe like forgotten what she meant uh, in the culture or to them specifically. I mean, like people do mean something to you when they're on TV every day, and especially on a show like The View where, uh, you know, she was on our screens almost every day um, and like sharing things about herself. And she's like a very enigmatic figure. And at least for me, like that really ingratiated her into my life. And I feel like that's the same for others. But I did think that because it's been so long, I was surprised that people were able to tap back into that. And speaking of The View briefly, because I feel like there's like so many eras of Barbara and it's easy Mm -hmm. with recency bias to sort of, you know, zoom in on The View. And for good reason, it's a huge part of her legacy. But like Barbara Walters would have been one of the most famous, if not the most famous journalist of all time, had The View never even come along. But I think one of the interesting sort of like uh, ways to zoom in on The View is to look at the way in which uh, Barbara, who was one of the co-creators of The View and sort of had the idea around The View, which has now sort of been replicated time and time again in all various countries, um, 
was this idea of like dignifying stay-at-home mom's intelligence. When the show premiered in 1997, that was not the norm. Uh, you know, you had a lot of, uh, there was QVC, you had a lot of infomercials. Uh, certainly there were daytime talk shows, but I don't think that they were, uh, again, dignifying women's intelligence in the way that this show was and also showing the idea that women, the gender of women was not monolithic. And by bringing in women of various backgrounds, various cultural identities, various ages, various uh, political beliefs, which I think became a bigger thing, you know, later on. But I just think it created an alchemy that there's a reason why it's been replicated so many times. And that very much was the brainchild of Barbara. Now, I know you and I also both love the Bible. And by the Bible, I mean Barbara Walter's audition. Um, a book that is out of circulation right now. I back ordered it on Amazon the day she died and it finally just arrived. However, I found my copy while I was in Pittsburgh at home. Thank goodness. I was worried. I like literally when I found out she died, I went right to my bookshelf and I didn't find the book. And I was like, what is going on here? Because I know I wouldn't have gotten rid of it. I feel a really big connection to that book. I feel like that book uh, really shaped a lot of the way I try and approach journalism. I feel like that's even like unfair of me to like, I'm not trying to equate myself with it. I'm just, again, when I say Bible, I mean, I just, I, so much of how I know how to do what I do comes from Barbara, but specifically in this book. One thing I always remember about Audition, um, and I have so many parts of it dog tagged, but one thing specifically, and you and I have talked about this, how often with famous people, you sort of get the, I wasn't famous, and then all of a sudden I was famous. And with Barbara Walters' Audition, there's a great amount of space given to those early years of her career and, and figuring out how she got to become the Barbara Walters that we all know. It's a really unique book in that sense in which you really walk through the many variations of her career and how she started as the little person in a big pond and sort of worked her way up. And I love that about it. In addition to the fact that one of the things that will remain uh, Barbara's legacy is that there will be nobody else ever, I feel, that will have been afforded the opportunity or made the opportunity rather to interview so many famous people. She just knew everyone, whether they were in the political realm or the celebrity realm. And that just doesn't exist today. It, there's no one in that space. So I know, I believe you said you reread Audition recently. Yeah. yeah. What were your takeaways, 37 year old Sean, from reading <laughs> Audition? I was 36 when I read it. Oh, but sorry. <laughs> we'll say that. What I took away from it was this idea of Barbara Walters, the mentor. Because, yes, we know that she led the way for a lot of female journalists. I think a lot of male journalists as well. I think just in terms of her style and how, how people learn to interview from her. Um, and I feel like what struck me rereading this was the the openness she had to sharing her secrets. So she very openly talks about her approach to interviews, how she interviews, the kinds of research she does, the way that she sorts through her questions. Like it is very like detailed. And if you're coming at it from that perspective, it's really like a, a playbook for how yeah. to be a great interviewer. And not only that, but she's also very open about money. And I think that, that was really interesting. She talked about basically how much she made every step of the way and how she had to fight for what she was going to make, how those negotiations went, how it was perceived in the press. And that's what I really like because, you know, getting to the point that you said about, you know, at some point you're not famous and then you're, you become famous. And I feel like a lot of celebrity memoirs brush over that 
period or they brush over that transition, which seems to me a very significant transition in somebody's life. And not so much the fame, but more so the money. So coming from not being wealthy to suddenly being very wealthy and how that changes your life. I feel like people don't talk about that in their autobiographies. And I'm always disappointed about that, especially when it's somebody who like came from nothing and then achieved greatness. Barbara, I think, was like a little bit more comfortable. Like she was upper middle class, but you know, she she struck this career of her own and she made a lot of money doing it. And I was really struck by her openness about talking about that money and how it changed her life and how she supported her family and like very specifically talked about like, so then I bought my parents this condo in Florida and then I had to move my sister into this home. And then, you know, like all of these little things was like, that's what I want to hear. It's like, and so she's talking about, I had to make decisions in my career that allowed me to continue to hold this lifestyle that I had in New York, but also support my family elsewhere because of all of these things that were going on. I felt like I really appreciated her openness about all of that. I feel like there's just a lack of resentment from Barbara Walters about how the world worked and her place within it. And it's easy to look back at Barbara and talk about her as like the first or such a fighter or ballsy and all these things. And I don't think Barbara thought of herself that way. I think Barbara was just really pragmatic. She saw a problem. And so in her mind, she just went to, how am I going to solve it? I don't think it was a matter of wanting to be, wanting to break any glass ceilings, wanting to be the first in the door. All of that was a byproduct of, I think, something just really that came naturally to her, which was just the idea that she was a problem solver. She saw a lot of problems. She knew how to solve them. And then also she just had an ease with which she approached interviews. Um, One of my biggest pieces that I've ever taken away from Barbara, I always think about this when I'm an interview, is that Barbara always said your follow-up question to any question that you ask should be asking why. Because you're going to ask a question, they're going to give you an answer, and they're probably going to try and not go long. Although increasingly in today's world, sometimes people go a little too long. But I think that Barbara just understood the idea that you needed to press people to say more. And so often people weren't pressed uh, to say more. And so she sort of understood that it wasn't about having this incredible follow-up question. It was simply the having the follow-up question. And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of that was the magic of Barbara was sort of her lack of showmanship, but just, again, this sort of like this practicality about her approach and genuine interest in people. Um, She was someone who was infinitely fascinated by people. You know, I I, I had us both choose a clip, uh, one that we really love of Barbara, but before we get to that, I think you and I were both really touched by Sherry Shepard's comments that she made about Barbara. I think we, you and I, a lot of Barbara fans, a lot of View fans, we were sort of looking to the View co-host to sort of lead the conversation around how we were going to talk about this. Um, Specifically those that really knew her best, you know, because a lot of the View co-hosts, especially those that came in the later years, didn't really work with her too much. But I feel like every View co-host had a very unique relationship with Barbara. Um, And so I think Sherry's was the one that really touched me. And I just got the sense uh, then and now that Barbara really had a special place in her heart with Sherry. What did you make of Sherry's Instagram caption about uh, their relationship? 
Yeah, well, it lined up with everything that I know about their relationship. And I think that Sherry has such an interesting arc where she joined The View and she was not a great co-host at first. And she caused controversial headlines for them where she was not sure whether the earth was round or flat. And, you know, she was really, uh, I think, in deeper than she was expecting to be when she joined The View. And Barbara could have fired her. Right. And she didn't. Instead, she took her under her wing and she mentored her because that's what Barbara does. And I'll always say, and for anybody who listens to the great podcast, Deja The View, I'll always say on that podcast that Sherry has the most interesting arc of any View co-host where she came in just totally out of her element and then grew so naturally and so beautifully into the co-host that she became and you know could stand toe-to-toe in a political argument and I think that's all because of Barbara's mentorship and so when Cherry says in her tribute that Barbara said on her way out that like uh something like she touched her face and said you're my favorite or something like something to that effect right like that's so beautiful and then and then and then says like okay don't cry like leave me alone I just think it's so quintessentially Barbara and speaks to the humanity that Barbara approached mm. her employees and colleagues with and that that idea of mentorship. I mean, there's a reason that when Barbara left, we had every single notable female journalist uh, step out onto that view stage to honor her. I also think there was an understanding from Barbara about the long game with people and investing in people. I think that Barbara was one of the few people that was, you know, you talk about those early years with Sherry where she was really stumbling. And I think it was easy to say, wow, Sherry was not the right decision for this show. And I think Barbara didn't lay down and die in that situation. No, no, not she. Instead, she said, I'm going to, I made this choice. I'm going to stick with it. And I'm going to prove people wrong. I'm going to help Sherry get to where I know she's capable of getting. And I think that in addition to Sherry sort of uh, just becoming a better co-host through experience, I think having that belief in her from Barbara helped Sherry become better at the job. And I think the Sherry we see today on The Sherry Show is very much there. Like that, that presence, that charisma, that confidence was built from Barbara. The other tribute I was very moved by was Rosie O'Donnell, uh, who posted a TikTok video, and she recalled a story from, because they used to go see Broadway shows together a lot. They both were lovers of Broadway. And she talked about the fact that she was backstage with Barbara once, and they were walking up the stairs, and, and Rosie put out her arm to sort of help Barbara up the stairs, and Barbara batted it away and said that she didn't need any help. And I just feel like, again, that sort of underlines who I understand Barbara to be so much, um, was that you have someone like Rosie who's just trying to do a nice thing but Barbara didn't need a nice thing because Barbara wanted to do it on her own to prove I think it didn't seem like it was to prove to Rosie I always got the impression it was to prove to herself that she didn't need anybody else that she was going to go it alone and and there's something kind of sad about that um, but there's also something rather triumphant about that there's just again with Barbara she's so complicated and that's why I love that we have this book audition to sort of be able to look at the rough and smooth I got really frustrated seeing some of the people in the immediate aftermath of her death on Twitter sharing some of her more problematic interviews and being like this bitch and I'm like yeah she was that bitch and she was 10 other bitches the good connotation of bitch like 
I think it's it, people like her cannot be flattened even in Twitter's attempt. So sure, she said some unsavory things over the years in her career, but I think the best thing about Barbara was that she like always kept it real and asked the kind of questions that could not be asked today. I mean, like, is it appropriate to ask Chris Christie why he is fat? No. And a lot of people are wondering, why is someone like Chris Christie, you know, not uh, promoting a more healthy lifestyle? Like, it's a question people have that she was unafraid to ask. And again, I don't think her lens into the question was, I'm going to ask the question no one else is asking. I think she just genuinely had the question in her head. And all she knew as a journalist was to ask the questions that she and by proxy, her viewers would be curious about. So with that said, we want to each, we each chose a clip of Barbara. Again, these, this does not sum up Barbara's entirety. This is but a piece of the Barbara Walters puzzle, a puzzle that I will forever be assembling. Um, do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? I'm happy to go first. Okay. Let's have you go first. Okay, so I chose a clip from Rosie's first tenure on The View in 2006. This is a clip where they were discussing a hot topic about dinner parties and dinner party etiquette. Rosie brought up seating charts, basically, at dinner parties, and that at rich dinner parties, you have place cards, and they typically separate you from your spouse, whereat as Rosie called them, normal dinner parties. You serve mac and cheese and eat hamburgers and hot dogs and you sit wherever you want. But it quickly got personal. I went, I went to dinner with uh, Meg Ryan, who I haven't seen in a while, because, you oh. know, we did Is that. Is she a rich person or a poor person? She's a rich person. Well, I, she's, uh, yeah, she's a rich person, she's a but rich she's person. not a rich person like Barbara's friends. Like, oh, you know what, you know what? It's not a mean thing. wrong with it i'm just saying for me it's like a new culture of experience like honestly the first really ritzy apartment that i've been in in my life was yours one of those sort of it was fantastic all this real works of art on the wall and julian schnapp why is that bad <laughs> listen i'm rich too i'm copying to it i am rich i'm saying it okay fine i'm very I do not have mirrors. I have a picture of hers. I have some very pretty paintings. I have a pretty apartment. When did this turn negative? We need Dr. Phil! All I was saying is... You know, like two people who have a lot of money arguing about who's poorer. No, I never said I was poor. Honey, I, I have more money than a human needs. I'm saying that right now. I really do. But I just think it's a very fascinating kind of culture that when you go yeah. into these apartments on Fifth Avenue and they're fantastic and they've got all, it's like a whole, intri- yeah. it's, to me it's like well, going to a museum. Well, I would think if I went to a beautiful mansion on Star Island in Florida, Uh-oh. I would feel very much the same <laughs> Honey, way. Honey, that yeah. is a movie star house. Make no mistake. Right. That is the house that's that one? me. Oh, that's your house. <laughs> There's a picture of my being very elite. No, no, that's not what I mean at all. And that's not the way I live. Barbara, that's not what I'm saying. Can I just have a 
moment, yes. after much prayer and counsel, <laughs> I have decided that I won't be coming back to The View. No, I'm kidding! That was just a little comedy! That was a joke! Well, <laughs> so tell me what drew you to that clip. So I think this is one of the all-time underrated View fights, feuds, ever. Because it just perfectly sums up that era of The View. And it it really demonstrates, I think, both the role that Rosie thought she was playing and the role that Barbara thought she was playing. And I think particularly with Barbara, she ha- she is very conscious about the way that she's perceived. And she is very hoity-toity, a little like elite or she at least likes to surround herself with the elite and a lot of that has to do with the art of the get which she talks about in in audition quite a bit about like how you have to play that long game build relationships with people that you want to interview and these people she wants to interview typically are very elite like government officials or the ultra a-list celebrities and so she has to sort of stand in both worlds where she has to be relatable because she's on the view every day and she's in normal people's homes and she also has to play this game with the elite and you know granted that she's she's making a lot of money doing all of this she does have this fifth avenue apartment you know she is a little elite and for rosie to come in there and then so it almost feels like taking the mask off on daytime TV of like, this lady's not the lady you think she is. And I don't think anybody thinks that Barbara's like a normal person, but that was the impression that Barbara gave on The View. And there's just so many great like micro moments from this. And and that's a short clip. This is this is like a six minute long argument. And the, But my favorite moment is, you know, when, when Rosie does throw down and really ter- makes it personal when she says the first real ritzy apartment I've been in was yours. And Barbara just gives her this death stare and goes, Rosie, like, you know, that there's going to be a conversation off screen about this, but yes. Barbara has to just roll with it. Come and by I think my the dressing way room. that Barbara <laughs> flips that and is like, well, you've got a pretty nice house uh-huh. too. I felt like was very savvy and showed that she could like roll with the punches. And totally. I, yeah. It perfectly sums up Barbara for me on The View. Absolutely. And it's such a breezy fight because I think when most people think of a view fight, they think of like the bigger throwdowns. But this Mm -hmm. one is great because they keep volleying. So it moves really nicely. And one of the great things about the view, especially in this era, is how activated the audience is throughout it. So they're just clapping along at every turn. No one's rooting for anyone. There's no gasps. Everyone's enjoying the conversation. They're not perceiving it as a fight, but rather two friends sort of going at it. In like a fun way um, but yeah I think as you said I think Barbara always had this issue with perception and prior to 1997 Barbara's role was that of you know being a mirror to other people and then the view comes along and suddenly she's sharing aspects of her personal life and I think yeah the life that Barbara led in her mind it was just all through work, right? Like she was afforded this, all of these opportunities to, you know, brush elbows with the rich and famous because she, in her mind, was the least important uh, person in a room full of important people. And what Rosie was sort of showing her in that moment, she's holding up the mirror to Barbara and saying like, no, you are one of the people that you purport, like you are not the least important person in the room full of important people. You are in fact one of the most important 
people in a room full of entirely important people. And yeah, it's it's funny to watch Barbara. I wouldn't say that in that clip she's reconciling with it. More she's sort of saying, well... I'm going to turn the tables on you, Rosie. And it's the perfect, I mean, I don't want to say adversary, but it's the perfect person for her to do that with because Rosie is guilty of that, which is she's calling out, but in a totally different way um, in that uh, guilty is almost the wrong word because it's sort of misunderstanding Rosie's point altogether. But that's what makes that clip so electric. Like they're arguing two different things. Neither is right. Neither is wrong. And then on top of it all, just as like a bonus, you get Joy and Elizabeth in the background. And yeah, I mean, how yeah. good we had it for a period. Um, I'm really glad you chose that clip. So this is a clip that's uh, less niche, uh, but also really important. I think a lot of uh, many, especially older people listening to this podcast will be familiar with this clip. But this is from an interview that Barbara did with the actor Sean Connery. Years ago, you did an interview, which may come back to haunt you. What, you know what I'm going to say, right? No. Okay, you did an interview in which you said, not the worst thing to slap a woman now and then. As I remember, you said you don't do it with a clenched fist, it's better to do it with an open hand. Mm. Yeah, remember that? Yeah. Yeah. I I, didn't love that. I haven't changed my opinion. You haven't? No, not at all. You think it's good to slap a woman? No, I don't think it's good. I think think it's bad. I don't think it's that bad. I think that it depends entirely on the circumstances and if it merits it. What would merit it? Well, if you have tried everything else, and women are pretty good at this, they, they can't leave it alone. Eh? They don't they want to have the, the, the last word, and you give them the last, last word, but they're not happy with the last word. They want to say it again and, and get into a really provocative situation. Then I think it's absolutely right. To give a good slap. Yeah, absolutely. What if she gives you a good slap back? Well, then you get into another area. I mean, uh, then maybe she's getting to like it, and then it becomes something else. I don't know. But uh, no, no, I, seriously, I think that uh, it's the last resort. He's not going to do it because he wants to do it. Huh? Wait till people see this interview. Are you going to get mail? Okay, first of all, for people that, you know, podcasting is, a, is an audio medium, Barbara's hair, um, so important. <laughs> Throughout yeah. this interview, her chin is raised. There's yeah. uh, the body language is that which with it says, "I will not cower. Um, I'm not scared of you." My favorite part of that exchange, and and, and there's a, it's a little bit longer. This is just sort of a pared down version of it because the whole interview, I wouldn't describe it necessarily as tense, but it's just clear that Sean. Sean doesn't feel like he's saying anything controversial. And obviously we and Barbara as the proxy for us is understanding, as she says in the end there, that people are not going to take fondly to what you're saying. But I love that follow up where she says, what if the woman slaps you back? I just feel like, you know, at this time in history, uh, for her to be able to volley back something that was just so masterful and so giving it right back to him in ways that he didn't even realize he was giving it. I just love Barbara in that moment. I think it's such a great interview. And I especially like the fact that Barbara's reaction to all of this is not that she's overly shocked, because I think Barbara understands that this, these Burt Reynolds of the world are more common than people think, especially in the circles that she's walked within. And so I interpret it more as Barbara feels like she finally was able to capture something that she knows happens in the dark and put it into the light. 
Um, and I just, I love that she got this moment, but I particularly love how she handles this moment. And I just love her delivery of, remember that? Didn't love that. <laughs> Rest in peace, Barbara. We'll miss you. Okay, before we wrap this up, I just, there's a few hot topics. I know we're running long, but I just wanted to, you know, get our thoughts because the streets are talking and I feel like we need to get on the streets. So, Scream 6, we got our trailer. What were your thoughts when you took a gander at the latest chapter in Ghostface's ongoing terror streak? Wow, you're lucky I did watch the trailer because <laughs> I almost didn't. I uh, I don't care, honestly. And I love Scream. I really do love Scream. I love the franchise. Uh, I, I, I love it to varying degrees, you know, sequel to sequel. But I enjoyed the last one. Uh, now, uh, here's where I'm confused because I thought the Nev Campbell thing got all cleared up. And I thought she was in the movie. Like I don't know if this just was I had a dream one day. And uh, it wasn't real, or if there was rumors, then they turned out not to be real. But I thought that after the big public outcry about Nev Campbell not being paid enough, that then they came back and offered her more money, and then that she was in it. But she's not. So (laughs) So that never happened. I mean, there's a lot going around right now saying that she is going to either be Ghostface or that she will be in the movie somehow. And the only reason why I think that there's some validity to this is... I have a hard time reconciling that Courtney Cox, who was in it from the get-go with Nev Campbell, would be making, and also Courtney Cox, who comes from the world of making a million per episode on Friends, would have found a salary that she was comfortable with from the movie, but that they were not offering Nev something that, like, something just feels off that they, like, offered Courtney enough that she was happy and that they that that wouldn't have been happy for Nev and that Courtney would have been comfortable moving forward with something that she started with someone like Nev all these years ago and then was just like okay fine goodbye and we haven't heard from Nev on this subject since she first spoke out and how triumphant of a narrative would it be for both Nev and it would make the studio and everything look good to say that okay, yes, we made a mistake and we lowballed the actor in the beginning, but we finally, you know, remedied the situation and gave the audience, I mean, imagine how fucking excited horror fans are going to be when their final girl returns, if she returns. I mean, truly, yeah, I I would love that. Uh, Do I love the idea of Ghostface in New York City? I'm not that thrilled about it. I don't know that... It does feel like a jump the shark moment potentially. And I think there's been a couple jump the shark moments in this franchise <laughs> yeah, already. So. so this one feels like the like a big one where we're really taking the franchise in another direction. And if that's the case, it's like I almost don't even want Courtney Cox in it. If we're really just gonna like do go all Halloween H2O on this, then like let's go and do a whole new cast and put Tyra Banks in there. You know, at, mm, LL Cool J, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll see it. I'll see it. I'll yeah. see it. But I'm not that thrilled. And the gun, I'm not a fan of the gun. Yeah, not a fan of the gun either, which is that's also been a big conversation online. Um, I also just feel like the character of Gail Weathers, she like stopped being Gail Weathers around the second movie. Like everything that like we, like culturally and specifically like queer people and whore lovers love about Gail. That all takes place in the first two movies. I think maybe there's shades of it in the third movie, but the third movie really is an outlier in the franchise tonally in so many ways. Um, 
But like Gale in Scream 4, Gale in Scream 5, like there's very little character, which goes back to my larger thought, which is that like, I think a lot of people have like, perceptions of Scream that make it seem like this incredible like franchise um, more than it really actually is. I think there's no better example of that than like fans love of Kirby played by Hayden Panettiere, who's like a really like uniconic, I will say unmemorable character, but that like the fans latched onto like the lore around her and made it such a thing that like they literally decided to bring her back for Scream 6, despite the fact that she was not in Scream 5, and there's never been a character to appear in a second film that wasn't the direct sequel of the former one. And I just don't really know like to what end, but like, yeah, and like you said, New York City, I'm not so sure, but I will be tuning in, and I'll be curious if Nev Campbell does not pop up Will Nev Campbell make any, you know, future statements on that, on this? Has she said all that she will say? It's very fascinating. Actually, funny enough, today's episode features Emma Roberts uh, of Scream 4, and we do talk about this very subject, so stay tuned. Okay, real quick, I just wanted to get your thoughts on The Real Friends of WeHo. Um, did you watch it, first of all? D- missed The Real Friends okay. of WeHo. Didn't I tuned see in. It really did enjoy what I saw, but but this is perfectly fine for us to have this conversation because there was so much pushback from the community. And I don't mean to say like the community is, you know, one thing, but when I say the community, I mean like the community being gay men on Twitter, gay Twitter. right? Yeah, gay, gay Twitter. Twitter. Yeah, there you go. Um, there was so much pushback to the existence of this show and so many people being like, I don't want to watch this. This is so ridiculous. It's cutting in because Drag Race uh, has been 90 minutes for some time. They made Drag Race 60 minutes in an effort to make room for this show. People are not happy with the cast, which includes Todrick Hall, Brad Goreski, not known for being beloved figures in our community, which I see as all the more reason to cast them and put them on this show. I mean, there's a whole... Exactly. There's a whole opening montage that takes place in this show where they sort of... uh, I don't know, they summarize what it, what West Hollywood is and like what it means and everything. And it's like so laughable. I enjoyed this so much. And one thing that I wanted to bring up was this idea of like, why do we, and when I say we, maybe I just mean, why does gay Twitter feel this need to want some kind of representation? Like, can we get to a point where we acknowledge the fact that like, a show like this, or thinking about the movie like Bros, for instance, not every depiction of queerness, even if it's queerness on, you know, varying types of queerness, not everything is about representation. I feel like it's fair looking at the cast that people would be automatically turned off by this. I mean, Todrick is a very controversial figure. Uh, and I don't think that it's based in homophobia. I think it's based in him being a shitty person. And so that is what it is. And then to, to like cast him on a show and give him this platform, I can see why people would be upset about that. I also can see why that makes for very good TV. I mean, like cast Todrick in The Traitors. Like that's something I would like to see. Okay. I feel like we covered the hot topics. Uh, we tried to pay some respect to Barbara Walters. And it, in the coming weeks, Deja the View will be publishing its 100th episode, which will be a tribute to Barbara Walters. Wait, wait, what's the Christina Aguilera thing that we love? It's coming, I promise. It's going to be a body of work that will mm. be timeless. 
great. Can't wait. Coming up, Deja the Views 100th episode. All right. Uh, from discussions of Ghostface to someone that embodied Ghostface themselves, I'm super excited to come back after the break with the fabulous Emma Roberts. Today's Shut Up Evan is sponsored by Sunday Riley. I was going to say it's the beauty industry's best kept secret, but it's really no secret. Sunday Riley is the go-to brand for those who want great skin at a great value. I'm a huge fan of all of their products, even though my application process could use some refinement, but my current favorite of their offerings is their Good Jeans Lactic Acid Treatment. Good Jeans deeply exfoliates the dull surface of the skin for instant glow and radiance. As dull, dead surface cells are removed, clarity and smoothness are restored. No wonder it was listed as one of InStyle Magazine's best beauty buys of 2022. Go to sundayriley.com to check out Good Jeans as well as their full range of product offerings. That's sundayriley.com. Shut up, Evan! I'm so excited to be joined by Emma Roberts, who I've been a fan of for quite a long time, both as an actress and as an incredible entrepreneur. So I'm just so glad this day has finally come. Hi, Emma. Hi, I'm like, please age yourself and tell me how long you've been a fan. <laughs> um, I mean, I could really age myself, but you know what? You and I are close in age. So I feel like I've followed your trajectory as I was going to say a peer. I don't mean a peer as an actor. I just mean like a peer as like a person in their thirties. I'm your peer and I'm a person in my thirties and I'm a big fan of yours. I like love your Instagram and I know we've DM'd a little bit. So when they asked if I wanted to do this, I was like, yes. Well, I'm so excited. And you have multiple exciting projects that you just wrapped and some things on the horizon that I am super excited to be chatting with you about. But I want to start by talking about the meme because <laughs> I was so excited to hear that, you know, I was chatting with your people back and forth about some topics that I was interested in covering. And I was surprised that you would be willing to chat about this because it's such an interesting thing when something goes viral and there's not necessarily an understanding as to why, you know, I'm reminded of like that famous Dakota Johnson Ellen moment where it's sort of hard <laughs> to explain why it went viral and yet it did. But so some context here, it was July 24th, 2021, <laughs> you posted a video of you on the beach over the Lana Del Rey song, Happiness is a Butterfly, with the caption, Beautiful Night with Zimmerman. The video went immediately viral at the time and then has been recirculating with many comparing it to Daphne from The White Lotus. I'd love to get your reaction to that. <laughs> well, it's so funny because I remember that day my sister said to me instagram only cares about videos now so your instagram's gonna die if you don't start posting videos and my sister's 21 so i was like oh god am i gonna be in the instagram graveyard in my 30s because i'm not posting video so that day i went to this event and my makeup artist uh who was there jody she was like let me do a video of your makeup the light is so beautiful and i was like okay and she wasn't ending the video. So I was just, you know, doing what I did in the video, which is, you know, like sticking my tongue out and like trying to be cute and whatever girls do in videos on Instagram. And then I, the first song that came up, because I didn't even know you could put a song on a video, was the Lana Del Rey song. I'm like, I love Lana Del Rey. So I did it. Oh, and then it went viral. And I didn't even know until the next day when I was doing press and somebody was like, you know, you've gone viral. And I was like, what? I was like, oh, no, what did I do? And and then I saw that and it just snowballed into this whole thing um, that has now been resurrected by, yes, Daphne and White Lotus, which I mean, if I'm going to be resurrected by anyone, please let it be Daphne from White Lotus. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, at the time, you know, you you kind of mentioned when you hear the word viral, 
as I imagine as a famous person, it's sort of like, oh God, what did I do? Because virality is often associated with a negative, but this wasn't a negative in this case. But like I mentioned with the Dakota comparison earlier, it's sort of one of those moments that it's hard to pinpoint why it went viral. If you were to interpret that, why would you say that this video became so popular? I mean, not that I would try to go viral, but when I do something that I'm like, or I post something that I'm like, oh, people will love this. Nobody cares. And then I think the more you don't care about something, I don't know, there's something inherently cool in not caring, I guess. So maybe that's what it is. I mean, it's the same thing with, um, I'm going to throw it way back to Coven, Surprise Bitch. I was going to bring that up. Surprise Bitch. I bet you thought you'd seen the last of me. We were shooting that scene and it was just like every other day. And we did it a couple times. And that meme, I mean, and at the time, I didn't even really understand like meme culture because this was now, I mean, we're talking almost 10 years ago. And again, like it's, I, I just feel like certain things catch on. Um, I, 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 there's no, it's, it's je ne sais quoi. I mean, it's the thing you can't put your finger on. Um, but the internet is just the wild west. It, it's just, it's almost too free that like I, I need parameters for my internet. Yeah. There's just no rules. And it's it's kind of frightening, but also hilarious. Um, and and I'm still trying to get a grasp on it. You know, you mentioned that like that frightening yet hilarious. And I think that is so perfectly stated because it's easy to make the argument about how toxic social media is. But then I think about all of the connections that I've made because of social media. So it's kind of like a yes and in that sense of like, yes, it's the Wild West which creates a lot of great opportunities for people that might not otherwise have had them. And it mm -hmm. also is the wild west and all the negative ways that you and I both know. Now, when you talk about the surprise bitch meme, for instance, I have to imagine it's an odd thing as an actor and you've been an actor for quite some time now. So this idea of like meme culture and, and clips of yours being taken out of context from the work itself and then recontextualized on the internet. I imagine that's a strange sensation. And I'm just wondering because that didn't exist at the start of your career. And it's sort of something that's really taken a hold in the last few years, especially with gift culture, meme culture, et cetera. Mm -hmm. What's that like from your perspective as the person in the meme? You know, luckily, my 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 meme um history has as you said been like kind of funny and benign and like kind of interpreted however you know suited like the humor of the time which was fine with me and uh but you know like when i'm reading scripts now there's certain like i mean not that i ever was okay with doing nudity but then after like gif and meme culture came around i'm like now i'm definitely not doing nudity because it's just going to become you know like a tumblr post or a meme joke or you know it, it's just going to be all over the internet whereas i feel like when i started acting you know watching a show and watching a movie was something that you took time out of your life to do and it was you immersed in that moment and now I just feel like everything is kind of up for grabs to be made fun of. And, you know, even I'm guilty of it. I'm watching a show and I'm texting some of the time. And I, and I think about it when I'm shooting, I'm like, I, I love this scene so much. I hope no one's just ordering Postmates during it and not paying attention. <laughs> and, um, and so it's just such a different um, culture, which in a sense it puts more pressure on, but then also takes some pressure off because you know, instead of releasing, you know, one movie a year, it's like with Instagram and this, it's like you're kind of constantly giving people a feed of yourself. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and it's not just on the TV and it's not just in movies. Um, I think it's hard to even wrap your head around because we're living it right now. And I think in like 20 years, we'll be able to have more perspective on like what this kind of culture really was. You mentioned the nudity and it being like, you know, screenshotted. I thought about that when I was making some of my White Lotus memes. And I even messaged several of the actors before I posted the stills to kind of gain their consent, not because I needed it, but because I felt like in a sense, it's like, I'm taking this art of theirs and turning it into like, I'm like sexually commodifying them in a sense. Mm -hmm. And I felt this need to like gain their permission because I was like, this is not necessarily inherently ethical, even though it's just a screenshot of their work they didn't make this with the intention of having their buttocks, you know, on social media. They made mm -hmm. it because it was part of a story that they were trying to tell. And so I, it's definitely something I think about as someone who creates a lot of content or makes content out of content that's been created. Yeah. You know, that's so interesting. And that's cool that you did that. Um, and I think that's like, that's what I'm talking about where like, I think we'll have more understanding of this time, the more time that goes by, because even like, oh, it's 11-11, make a wish. I always make a wish at 11-11. <laughs> um, but I, you know, and I think it's still going on, but people, actresses or actors who were getting sued by paparazzi for posting the paparazzi photos. Yes. And I remember like being so perplexed by that because as someone you know, who, who is followed by paparazzi sometimes. And especially when I was pregnant and like how intrusive that was and how scary that was and how weird that was. But then also knowing that, I guess I kind of signed up for that, but then it's like, if I post it, it's a photo of me. And then I would be sued by the person who took my photo without asking me. You're right. You're absolutely right. I mean, I remember I, I saw Timothy Chalamet at uh, Tompkins Square Bagel a while ago, and I took a picture of him and posted it. And it was like, you know, because I was so excited because I saw this celebrity that I mm -hmm. love. But there's also the flip side of like, he's just going about his day and I've now put him on blast and maybe he didn't want to be. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah. I, I definitely, I think there is that gray area. Like you, it's like, I'm interested in how we will look back at this time, yeah. 10, 15, 20 years from now. Yeah, no. And for me, like, I don't mind if someone takes a secret photo of me as long as I don't have a double chin. Um, <laughs> but if I have a double chin in it and then I end up seeing it, then I'm pissed. Yeah, no, I get it. <laughs> so just a public service announcement. Make sure if you take a sneaky photo that I look cute. <laughs> in September 2020, you inked a first look deal at Hulu via your production company, Bellatrix TV. And you decided that your first project would be adapting Corolla Lovering's Tell Me Lies. Yes. Now, you read a lot of books. You are a voracious reader. And so I'm wondering, what was it about this book that made you say, I want to adapt this into a series? I love books that are about relationships. And uh, when I read this, it read like a relationship thriller. And for me, I feel like a lot of relationships I've been in would would be thrillers <laughs> um, if I were to write them down. <laughs> so, uh, so I definitely attach to that in it. It's a love story, but it's it's about a toxic relationship, and it's 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 ugly and it's messy, and it's dark. And I just kind of loved the idea of of showing that, especially for like millennials and Gen Z, because I hadn't really seen something that wasn't afraid of showing you know, people that age in, in ugly light and also in a sympathetic light where it's like, you know, 
not just stupid people get in toxic relationships, not just weak people get in toxic relationships, like completely normal people can sometimes find themselves in a toxic, you know, romantic relationship or friendship or dynamic with their family. Um, and I just thought it was so interesting to kind of show how easy that is. Um, and I, and I really, really love the way Megan Oppenheimer, our amazing showrunner, adapted it um, with the show. And, and Grace Van Patten and Jackson White, our two leads, you know, I thought showed it in a way where every week you're kind of rooting for somebody else. And I think that's how life is, you know? It's like you're never going to be the fan favorite every week of your life. <laughs> um, and just because you do one bad thing doesn't mean that the rest of your life you're going to be a bad person and vice versa. It ties back to our earlier conversation about the gray area. And so I'm with you. I sort of like this idea of, I think that there was a time in television where it's like, first it was the hero or the bad guy. Then it mm -hmm. became all about anti-hero. And totally. I think now we're evolving into this new place, which is to say like, it's not always so binary. Um, I'm really interested in stories that examine the bad things that good people, that the bad things that good people do and vice versa. And, and, you know, these writers that don't say this character is this way. Uh, instead, it's like this character is this way one minute and then the next minute might do something completely different, which I feel like was one of the things I really attached to Tell Me Lies. Hey, well, I'm so glad because um, those are my favorite kinds of stories. And that's why I think, you know, early on in my early 20s, like I was so excited to get to work with Ryan Murphy because I feel like he is the king of, you know, showing all sides of people and especially female characters where, you know, he's not afraid to write someone being a bitch. And then, you know, two episodes later, you're all of a sudden on that person's side, like rooting for them. Now you seem to have a great regard for authors and writers, and I'm wondering where that comes from. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, writers are like my, my celebrity. Um, I remember when we first launched Bellatrist, Joan Didion agreed to do an interview via email for our first newsletter. And I was just like, I remember refreshing my my email like every two seconds waiting for this email to come through. And I just could not believe that she even would give us the time of day. Like I can't imagine sitting down and writing a whole book. And I just have so much admiration for them. And especially I love memoirs and for people to not be afraid to like what we're talking about, tell all sides of themselves and like tell us their darkest secrets. And, you know, like I would just be so scared to even know what my mom or my friend thought, let alone the whole world. Um, so I've always just regarded them with so much admiration and respect. And um, I mean, I think that came from probably I was homeschooled from a really young age uh, from when I was 12 onward. And so to me, my learning experience was all through books. And I remember with one of my homeschool teachers, I was for English, I was like, can I choose what book I read if I promise to read a book every week? And she said, yes. And I remember being like, oh my God. And I felt like so excited to pick my book every week and I would read it as fast as I could. And, and I think that really just like propelled my love for reading and not only reading, but like, you know, really scouring for books that are not the first book on the table at the bookstore. Or like, you know, the New York Times number one bestseller, but like who's, you know, someone that I would never have found if I didn't, you know, like ask the bookseller in North Carolina at the bookshop where I was filming, like what their favorite book was. And um, and that's kind of what I've always loved about books is like if finding out what someone's favorite book is, I think is such a personal thing. And also, 
you can just read things that you never would have read in a million years um, if you hadn't started that conversation with someone. So that's always kind of been the genesis of like my love for reading and Bellatrice, the book club now turned production company. And the great thing about this book club is not only did you inspire so many people to either begin reading more actively or really find joy in reading that perhaps, you know, a lot of people associate reading with like education and school mm -hmm. and forget that like reading is a pleasure. So not only did you do that, but to your point about sort of like finding more obscure books that aren't necessarily New York Times bestsellers or the first thing that's going to be recommended at the library mm -hmm. or at the bookstore. I think that that's one to the credit of Bellatrice. Like there are so many books I've discovered that I would otherwise just have not had, I would not have found. Yay. No, that's the point. I mean, for me, like Bellatrice, we want it to feel like a cabinet of curiosities, you know, like I, I just feel like also you don't have to read War and Peace, you know, for us to think that you're a reader, like read yeah. a beach read. I don't care if you're reading Confessions of a Shopaholic. Like, I love that book. Like, you know, to me, it's it's not about like what you're reading. It's that you're reading. And uh, I remember my sister, Grace, she said the meanest thing a sister could say to me, which is, I hate reading. And I was like, Grace, I was like, if you're my sister, I can't have you saying that. And she was like, I do. And so I recommended her book after book after book. Never read it, never read it, started reading it, hated it. And then finally, like a few years ago, I gave her Daisy Jones and the Six. And she literally read it in three days and was like, I love reading what's next. And I remember mm. feeling like my, that, that is my life's work. I was like, my sister now likes to read. And that's the thing is like, I don't think there's anyone that doesn't like reading. You just haven't found a book you like to read. Now we've seen a string of actors like yourself, Reese Witherspoon and Jim Parsons spearheading adaptations of books via their production companies. It's obviously exciting, but I imagine it's also very challenging. Um, I was at a taping of Watch What Happens Live last week. Jim Parsons was one of the guests and he spoke about just how difficult it is to get something made. And RuPaul was the other guest and RuPaul nodded in agreement. And I'm wondering from your perspective, what are some of the challenges in getting something, going from that stage of, okay, I like this property, I want to adapt it to having it appear on our television screens? To get the rights to a book, it's it's like it's like uh, you're, you're in the... Um what's the place in Wolf of Wall Street where are they when they're all like trying to sell, 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 sell or buy, 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 buy the stocks? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it's literally like that now because everybody, you know, is getting the advanced copy. So now the advanced copy doesn't mean anything because people are selling books on just like a paragraph summary um, if it's a good idea. And, you know, like you said, you're up against some of the biggest names in Hollywood. And, um, and so- First of all, you just have to really like be passionate. You have to really be tenacious and you have to um, you just really try to get it. And that's why for me, I've been really interested in actually like looking at things that are out of print um, because like the new, 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 new thing is obviously, you know, going to go to probably the biggest actress that's trying to get it. And so I've been trying to always find like out of print short stories or out of print books and actually how Bellatrist first started the book club was my partner and my best friend, Kara Price. She gave me a copy of the book Sleepwalking by Meg Wolitzer. And it was out of print at the time. 
after I read it and wanted to get the rights to it, I went to the bookstore and I saw that, that it was being reprinted. And so half of me was like excited because I'm like, oh, people will read this now. But then the other half of me was like, wait, this was my secret book. Like now it's now everyone's going to know. And we actually um, had that in development at Amazon for three years. And then they they chose not to make it. And I remember just being so devastated. And uh, and so it's funny, you know, when people are like, you know, you're doing so well, you're doing so well. And it's like, yeah, you know, you're seeing the one thing that we got on the air, but you're not seeing the like 10 heartbreaks that, you know, took years in development that just got squashed. Um, but that's why it's so interesting. Cause like you kind of said about memes and going viral, it's, it's hard to know like what's gonna, what's gonna make it and what's gonna hit. And that's why, you know, you kind of just keep throwing things against the wall until something sticks because it's just such a fickle industry. And, and the people who are in charge, you know, say no to things for reasons that have nothing to do with how good something is. I know it's devastating. Um, you mentioned your friend Kara. I, I spoke with her ahead of today and she said that I have to ask you about dolls and Etsy and antiquing. These are three <laughs> subjects that I know very little about. So can you illuminate me? That little wench talked to you and didn't even tell me. She's literally, I slept in bed with her last night and she didn't even tell me. <laughs> um she's been staying with me. So we've been having sleepovers the last two nights and I just got the TV put in my room. So we've been like getting into bed at seven o'clock after my son goes to bed and watching TV together. It's been a dream. So dolls, I'm obsessed with dolls. I don't know if you've seen on my Instagram. Um, I haven't done one in a while, but I do some doll unboxing. Okay. You guys, I don't think you realize, but I am obsessed with dolls and my two new little girls are here. I like to hang out with my dolls, but again, I can't do it too often because people just screen grab photos of it and make me look like a crazy old lady. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, which not that I'm not, but, um, but so dolls, I I've always loved dolls ever since I was little. Like I had every Barbie you could ever imagine. And it was my, it ties into the antiquing. Like my mom and I, um, it was our thing. It was just me and her for, you know, the first 10 years of my life, besties. And she would, we would always go to the flea market on Sunday and they would have vintage Barbies. And I was like obsessed with them and she would always get them for me. And it was kind of like our little thing. But so I started collecting again in my twenties and I got obsessed with Blythe dolls, which are the dolls with the big eyes. And I guess they stopped making them. So they're hard to find. So it's also about the hunt for me. Like mm -hmm. it's not even the doll, it's the hunt. I feel like there's a correlation here between like hunting for the dolls and hunting for the right book to adapt. Cause it's like this idea of like, you want the rarities. It's so fun to hunt because it's like the hope of what you're going to find. It's like, yeah, reading a good book. You're like, is this going to be the thing that like, you know, becomes the thing um, that I want to make. And so with the dolls, I'm like, where is she? Like, I know she's out there, but where is she? Speaking of dolls, you appeared on Ryan Murphy's Scream Queens for two seasons as Chanel Oberlin. In October, the show's Instagram came back to life after a six-year hiatus and changed its profile picture and has since posted twice with you in both images. Is there anything you can tell me about that? Ryan and I have, have talked about it and, you know, we'll, we'll see. I, I would love to, to bring her back because truly, you know, when the, when the show first ended, 
people would come up to me all the time asking about her, but you know, the show had just ended and like, you know, I was like, okay, you know, obviously she resonated, but now we're talking, I mean, what I was 24, not to age myself. So now we're talking eight years and people still come up to me. So now I'm like, okay, I feel like we got to give people something else. So look, I'm down and uh, it's definitely something that I think is a conversation, but it's not, it's not up to me. You know, it's, it's up to so many people way, way, way over, over my, my pay grade. So <laughs> we'll see. But, um, but I think it would be so much fun because yeah, that was just, I really think that that show was like ahead of its time in a way. I concur. <laughs> I concur. You know, like, I just think the, the humor on it and, and the style of it, like to me, that show right now should be on streaming. And I remember at the time it was on Fox and it did well, but you know, I, I, it didn't, I think, do what it would do if it was on a streamer right now. Um, and if you could binge it, you know, that was still like weekly television. I'm like, not, not to age it even more, but it was with the horse <laughs> yeah. and carriages during weekly television, <laughs> kids. Um, but you know what I mean? And I think, I think it's such a bingeable show. So I would love to bring her back. Okay. I'm very into that because I mean, not for nothing, when an old show revitalizes its social media page out of nowhere, that's usually meant to signal something. So I think that there's some kind of there there. But speaking to Scream Queens, I did want to bring in a, a friend of yours and a former co-star who has a question for you. Oh my God. This question is for my dear, dear love queen bestie, Emma Roberts, from your Chanel sister, <laughs> Leah Michelle. Hi, babe. Hi. Um, oh my God. So I have been racking my brain for days thinking of the perfect question for Emma. It could be something funny. It could be something about work. It could be something about books. It could be a secret of yours that I know that I want you to spill to the rest <laughs> of the world. But I want to know, Emma Roberts, if you were anonymous for a day or for a week, it could be either. Where would you go? What would you do? Would you get like super wasted at a bar and just like go wild and say and do whatever the hell you wanted aka sort of what I would do <laughs> um or would my message got cut off so I'm finishing it now or would you travel would you stay home I'm curious what Emma Roberts would do if she wasn't Emma Roberts for a day and she had the freedom to go and be and do whatever she pleases. So that is my question. I love you so much, babe. And I'll see you soon. I'm going to cry. She's Leah's the most thoughtful. I miss her so much. Um, that's just, she's just hearing her voice like brings me back. Um, it was so cute. I side note was in New York and I saw a funny girl and it is the most spectacular thing I have ever oh seen. God. And I'm not even just saying that because Leah is one of my best friends, but truly I was crying at the end. Like I was clapping for her and crying because it's just so well-deserved by her. And like, I, I just couldn't believe it. And it was so funny because I remember she came out and, and she looked right at me and I like, I, she saw me and I was like, I'm crying. And she, she blew me a kiss. And I just, I love her so much. And, and when we shot Scream Queens, it was such a, 
it was such an interesting time in both of our lives. And I felt like we really like grew up and like bonded together during that. Um, and I mean, I, I spoke at her wedding. Um, our kids are close to the same age. Like she's just, she's my queen. And of course she thinks of the most thoughtful question to ask me. Um, if I was anonymous for a day, um, you know, I'm going to give you two answers. I'll give you like the big answer and then I'll give you the, like what I would do if it was right now. Great. I would go outside and sit at a restaurant and order so much food and drinks and stuff my face outside because I don't eat outside because I don't want people taking pictures of me eating because I'm a notoriously ugly eater. Like I was told by one of my friends, she's like, you should go for a drink date. Like don't go on dates with guys where you have to eat. And I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, what do you mean? And that was the first, this was like when I was a teenager and I was like, oh my God, I'm an ugly eater. Like people are ugly criers. I'm an ugly eater. Um, and then, I mean, a more glamorous, I mean, yeah, I would, I would travel and not feel like people are watching me. Like even at the airport, I, I'm, you know, always wearing like sunglasses and a sweatshirt and just trying to like make myself look smaller than I am because, um, you know, no one wants to take a photo when they're traveling, like a travel day is the worst. Like I always somehow have like cystic acne that day. Like I look terrible. My hair, my extensions are falling out. Like something bad. So I just, um, yeah, I would love to like travel and just feel like cute mm -hmm. and not have to think about what I look like. I think that's the biggest thing. Like, you know, I try not to be someone that's like, oh, I care so much about what I look like. But like we were talking about earlier, when people are constantly, you know, kind of looking at you or taking photos of you or judging you or making fun of you online or, you know, posting a photo of you, you know, yeah, with a double chin and like going through airport security, you kind of have to be aware of it. So I would love to just not give a fuck about yeah. what I look like. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned flying. I have had times where I'll be on a long flight and I'll get up in the middle of it and go to the bathroom and I'll look in the mirror, like not even on purpose, just, you know, reflexively. And I'll see myself for the first time in many hours. And I always say I'm a very different person when I'm flying. Like I don't know myself and I'll look at myself in that moment and I'll be like, oh my God, like I won't recognize the person in front of me just because me when I'm in the air, it's just like, I just, I disassociate from my own self. So I, I understand that entirely. Yeah. No, definitely. I go, yeah, you go into like the bathroom and literally I'm like, huh? I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, yeah, I, need, I, I need a facial. I need, yeah, a, I need I my need hair. Done. Like all <laughs> yeah. of a sudden it's like, I need extreme makeover home edition on my yes, face somehow. Exactly. I'm exactly. like, what is this? Is this lighting meant to like, just make you want to jump out of the plane? Like I'm confused. It's, it's yeah, always they're, they're, a fright. They're not doing us any favors. A fright indeed. Um, Speaking of fright, I am so excited to be able to ask you about Scream 4. I am a Scream super fan. You are the third Scream actor. I've been delighted enough to have on this podcast. And so I have to ask, you know, Jill, AKA Ghostface, has become uh, a, in the canon of great female film villains. Um, and I'm just wondering, did you know that Jill was going to have the long-term impact that she had? I did not. Um, what's so funny about that is um, it's like, again, people see you in a movie and think like, oh my God, like, so lucky she's in that movie and which I am so lucky, but I'll tell you this, when I, when that movie was first getting sent out to everyone, they said, don't audition. They were like, you're wrong for the part. So I didn't even get an audition for that movie. They were like, maybe you can do like a cameo, get killed off in the first scene, but like, you're not right for any of the roles. And I remember being like, huh? Okay. And so I go about my life. I get a call and they're like, so if you're up for it, 
they're already getting ready to shoot in Michigan, but they can't find someone to play this role. So will you go to Wes Craven's house and he will be on a FaceTime or it might've been a webcam back then, honestly, like it was like, not like a zoom. And, um, they were like, you're going to audition for him at his house, but he'll be on the computer and here's your sides and sign this NDA. And it was the scene at the end. That was the scene where she's like, you know, I don't need friends. I need uh, fans. What world are you living in? I don't need friends. I need fans. Which, by the way, I'm like, what a, what a, I'm like, is Jill a prophet? Like, it's I know <laughs> we're living in now. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So I went and I did the audition and I remember, I'll, I'll never, like, I get there. I'm like, they already told me I'm not right for this part. Like, they've auditioned to everyone. They can't find someone. Like, this is just, like, I'm not going to get it. And I remember picking up a, a pencil to hold as the knife. And I was just kind of like doing whatever. And he's like, thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, I leave. I ripped up the the my my pages and threw them in the back of my car and drove off ready to have like a summer in LA with my friends. And they called me the next day and they're like, you're going to Michigan. You got the part. And I was like, really? And so I I I went, but but it was literally just like I was kind of thrown into it. And again, like when you're going into something, having been told like that, like no chance. There's there's kind of a level of like I didn't feel pressure because I just felt like okay like you know I was never supposed to get it and I got it and that's cool and I'm gonna do my best I really committed to it a hundred percent though as you can see you know it's, it's like to an embarrassing degree when she's like you know smashed on the coffee table smashing her face into the mirror I remember being like I'm gonna get made so much fun of for this like it's so embarrassing. I feel like you created iconography. I have to disagree with you. I love it. I love it. I mean, like, to your point, you fully committed. And it's like, what more could we ask for as an audience? I'm like, I committed and looked like I need, needed to be committed. <laughs> <laughs> but that's Jill. <laughs> it is. And um, no, but it was cool. And I remember I saw her name's Jill Roberts. And I was like, oh, maybe that's a sign. Like, we have the same last name. Mm -hmm. um, but I had so much fun with her, honestly. Um I, I I loved it. I I loved that franchise. Like I was I was sad we didn't get to do another one with that kind of cast and that vibe. Um, it because it was really really fun. Yeah. Let me ask you. Uh, Scream Six. We just got the trailer a few months ago. I'm saying months because when this comes out, mm -hmm. uh, Nev Campbell is not returning for Scream Six. She walked away from the movie due to a salary offer. She said disrespected her value to the long running horror franchise. You were asked about it the day after it was announced during mm -hmm. an interview, which I just want to say, I can't imagine what it's like when you're doing an interview for something, a project that you're working on, you yeah. kind of get sidelined by a question that you're forced to answer in that moment. And of course, I understand why the person asked you because it was a yeah. hot topic, but I can also understand from your perspective where it's like, like, wait a minute, I'm processing this as well. Anyway, at the time you said, someone just sent me this news last night. And I was like, this can't be real news. Like this has to be fake. I mean, she's the queen. That's all I have to say, which by the way, mm. I think many people had the same reaction to you in that moment, which was like, how can this be real? I'm wondering what you think about everything now, because I have to say as a, as a fan of the franchise, it was jarring for me to watch that trailer because it became real for me in that moment that, oh, this is moving forward without the scream queen that is Nev Campbell. And I'm wondering what your perspective is on it all these months later. I mean, I think it's, it's ridiculous that she's not coming back because of money. Like to me, it's like, if she didn't want to, that's fine. Right. And I haven't talked to her. I mean, I, we had the best time on that movie. I, I don't, we don't stay in touch. So nothing I'm saying 
is because I've spoken to her. This is just my opinion. But I just think I hate that we're at a time, I feel like, in this industry where, you know, these kind of like big franchises or big shows or, you know, they act as though like like actors are disposable and it's like, well, we can just go on without the people that built it. And I, I, it really makes me sad because, you know, to me, it's like Nev like made that franchise and she was the most lovely person to work with. Like you didn't had no ego, no attitude was the most welcoming, amazing, like leader when we were filming that movie. And so to me, it's like, I just think it's so disrespectful to basically be like, we're not going to pay you. And not only that, but we're going to go on without you. And we're going to show you that this franchise can go on without you. I just think, I think it's rude. Um, Obviously we're at a time now where things are getting better for sure. Or at least if not better than more transparent, like I'm glad that it was out there that, you know, Nev wasn't getting paid so that fans could be upset and not think that she didn't want to come back. And I want to say to Nev's credit, as as you mentioned, the fact that she came out and said, this is why I'm not coming back, I think was a really powerful move so that people that are outside of the industry can understand the fact that it's not Nev not wanting to return. It's a situation that does not allow her to return because she's not getting what she knows she's due. So I appreciate that, that, yeah, her forthrightness about that. And I think that It's good for us, the audience, to understand that and know that these insidious forces still move about. So I want to chat about your new movie, Maybe I Do. Um, My favorite line from the film is your line early on where you say, this is my heart, this is my mind, all this can be yours if you call within the next 24 hours, operators are standing by. (laughs) Um, This is a stacked cast. I need not tell you, Richard Gere, Diane Keaton, William H. Macy, and my queen, Susan Sarandon. Actually, it's co-queens. Diane Keaton's also my queen. Um, this movie mm. for me, it felt like a play in that you have yeah. all of these expository scenes at the outset that lead and culminate to this meeting where you have these two families where it turns out that both sets of parents might already know one another. And I'm wondering what it was like for you working with, I mean, just working with one of these actors, I think could be a career highlight, but to get four of them, what was that like? First of all, I was like, I get to play Diane Keaton's daughter. I'm like, I might not be able to say my lines because I'm going to be so starstruck. Like she is my ultimate and Susan Sarandon, also my ultimate um, shout out to stepmom, which I know you were talking about the other week. I was going to ask you, it's my next question. Anyway, um, we can, we can uh, double back to that, but, okay. um, and let me tell you, Diane delivers obviously as an actress, but she delivers as Diane, like she is the queen. And so that movie, I, I when I was on set, I mean, I there was a, a scene that was like three pages long. And I remember I started to like sweat because I had the most lines in it and everyone had to kind of wait for me to get my lines out. And I went like completely like dry mouth, blank brain. I was like, oh my God. And I remember they were all just like, you got it, like go, go, go. And I, I, the first take was like bad. Like I just felt them all looking at me. And I remember being like, God, how many... Oscars and Oscar nominations are in the room right now and like I can't choke out my (laughs) line like kill me um but no they were the best and I got to my one comfort was working with Luke Bracey who was my co-star in Holiday and he's just a dream among dreams like we literally like share the newspaper and hair and makeup in the morning and chat like he's my he's my um my onset boyfriend um the best Mm. and 
I, 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 the movie is like a play. Like I would actually do the movie as a play with all those actors. It would be so fun. I think it would work really well. Yeah. Now you mentioned Stepmom. Stepmom is my favorite movie of all time. Although I would put Family Stone up there as I would with the first Wives Club as well. Um, but I read that you were on a lot of Julia Roberts's film sets growing up. And if the timeline computes the way I think it does, that's 1998, Stepmom shot in 97. That means that there's a chance that you might've been on the Stepmom set. Was that the case? And if not, what is your proximity to Stepmom? Okay. I, I actually, I should have asked my aunt or my mom before getting on here. If I was, I can, I'm going to ask my mom. Um, she's in the other room because she's been living with me for three years. Um, since this is COVID. important. <laughs> FYI. Um, but I don't know if I was on the set, but I do know that I spent Thanksgiving with your friend, Liam Aiken, mm. um, who was this, my aunt's son and stepmom my aunt's son. Um, uh, we spent Thanksgiving together after they filmed that movie. So um, I know that, but I don't know if I was there, but I do know it's one of my favorite Aunt Julia movies. I cry. Oh I God. laugh. I sing. I do it all. I mean, the singing in the hairbrush, like, I, I mean, every time I still do it when I watch that movie. Um. But no, I love that movie. And so Susan Sarandon, I mean, she's my my queen. Like, I, I mean, Bull Durham, like she's just everything. And she is so cool and sexy and talented. Like working with her, I was like, God, can I have some of your vibe? Like, what is this vibe? Um, and she was so sweet. She gave me a little Ramones t-shirt for my son as a gift. And I thought that was so sweet. And he wears it all the time. The, the my, I have one regret from that movie um, of an embarrassing moment. If you'd like to hear, I'm going to offer Please. it. So I was on set and Diane comes up to me. I'm like, Diane, Diane Keaton, the FYI, <laughs> Diane comes up to me and she puts something in my hand and it's a piece of paper. And she's like, this is my phone number. And I was like, Oh my God. Oh my, okay. I was like, thank you. Thank you. And I'm like, Oh my God, I got Diane Keaton's phone number. So I put it in my pocket and I like run upstairs but I got like a little sidetracked on the way. I don't know what I did. I got water. I like, you know, whatever. And I go to pull it out of my pocket to put it in my phone and it's not there. And so I'm literally running around the set looking for this scrap of paper with Diane's phone number on it. Can't find it anywhere. I'm so embarrassed. I can't be like, hey, Diane, like, and I, like I, well, I lost the paper with your number right. on it. Like, can I have it? And then I'm like, what if it was a prank and it wasn't her phone number? What if I open the paper and it's like, ha, ha, ha. Or like, what if it's a joke? What if it's a gag? I don't know. And then, so I lost the paper and I never asked her for her number and I never got it. And I never know what was really on the paper. If it was in fact her number, I do appreciate someone writing their number down on paper. There's Me something too. very antique about that versus like, you know, being like, get out your phone. But she's also so, she's so funny. Like she's one of the funniest people I've ever met that I think there's a small chance that it might not have been her phone number, which is why I couldn't be like, hey, you know, mm, anyways, I should have just asked. I'm going to ask her when I see her at the premiere. <laughs> There you go. You'll get her number at last. Yeah. Now, I've spoken to many of our guests, including Sarah Paulson and Molly Shannon, about their love of The Real Housewives. My two queens, by the way. Did you read her memoir? No. Okay, Emma, I honestly think Molly Shannon's memoir was A, the best book I read in 2022 <gasps> by a long shot, but what? I also think it is one of the best memoirs I've 
ever read. And I'm not trying to be hyperbolic. I feel so strongly about Molly Shannon's story and her storytelling and the vulnerability of like telling her story. And then also in turn telling her father's story because it's both, it's both her memoir, but it's the story of her father and the life that he couldn't live, but then sort of got to live at the end. It, it's so beautiful. It's so touching. Highly I'm, recommend. I'm, I, are you kidding me? She superstar. Like, first of all, I see that I watch that movie now and I'm like, LOL that I watched that movie when I was like, before I hit double digits. Like that was my movie. Like totally. I, I think I was her for Halloween. Oh my God. The, when she's like, sometimes when I get nervous, I, and then she like smells her armpits. It's so, so, so anyway, good. sorry. Yes, I digress. It holds up. Okay, so I, I'm just always fascinated by how many of these esteemed actors love Housewives. And I know that you two are a Housewives fan. What is it for you that fascinates you and, and me and so many? But but you're an actor. And I just think there's some connection here between all of these really, really talented actors loving this reality television franchise. What is it for you that that attracts you to it? Because it's the only thing that relaxes me. <laughs> it's the only thing... Somehow, like, like grown women screaming at each other puts me right in where I need to be. Um, but no, I mean, jokes aside, I think because for me as an actress, like, you know, you give me a script, whatever, I'll go do it. Like, in Scream 4, like, yeah, I'll go to work and put on prosthetics and run into a glass wall and, like, whatever, da-da-da-da-da. You put a camera on me as Emma, and I'm like, you know, walls are up, my guards up. I'm, you know, don't really know what to say. I'm a little worried about what I'm going to say. I, I start like, you know, like licking my lips. I'm touching my hair. And these women just let it all hang out. And mm. I think there is something so fascinating about it. And especially like when they get drunk and even like we go to another reality show, like The Bachelor, like I could never, I could never, ever. And so- I just think there's something so interesting about being able to like fight and get drunk and, you know, have your family drama and also lie like the way that they oh, lie. Yeah. I mean, oh, I'm yeah. like, go off, sis. I'm like, you are yes. lying and there's playback. And, you know, I'm always fascinated by how they just keep it moving, right? Because in life, if you get into a big fight with someone, you might be like, I need a break from this person or I don't want to deal with this. But this show sort of like, forces them to have these conflicts and then like forces them to resolve them totally. with cameras up. And so I just respect the art form where it's like, we've got to keep it moving no matter no, what. It's if art. A table flipped. Wine, exactly. If wine is thrown, no matter what, we got to keep going. And I feel like that's really fascinating because in life, I think a lot of people want to exit, you know, say, totally. I don't want to deal with this. We're like, these women, all they do is deal with it. And I think that is so powerful. I agree. Like there are times. So as I had said, uh, my mom came out to stay with me for two weeks during COVID and never left. So that's, it's been almost three years. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so sometimes I'm like, should I just like get a documentary crew to have cameras up for six months? Because I'm like, the, the household I'm living in with my mother, it's somewhere between like Grey Gardens, Look Who's Talking and Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Like that's what our, I don't know what genre that is, but that's the 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 story we're living over here. And also I'm like, the amount of times my mom's like, well, you said this. And I'm like, no, I didn't. Or you said this. No, I didn't. I'm like, if you're going to live with your mother for three years, when you're 31, you need playback. 
rough with the smooth, smooth with the rough rather. Um, I wanted to bring in our last guest. She is one of the stars of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. And I believe you've actually known her for quite a long time. And that would be the great Lisa Rinna. Hi, Emma. It's Lisa Rinna. Here's my question for Emma Roberts. Emma. I'm dead. If you were going to have dinner with four people, anybody you could have dinner with, in the entire world, who would those four people be? You get four people. Maybe we should make it five. Let's make it five so that there's six of you. I like even numbers better than odd. All right, so you can choose five people to have dinner with, to have like a fabulous dinner party. It can be anybody, but they have to be living. No, oh. no dead people, only living people. Who would that be? I have to just interject real quick to say one of the things that I love about Lisa Rinna is, you know, she mentioned four people and my initial thought was like, wow, that's too many people. And then she ups it to five. And I'm just like, okay, work. I was like, yep, go there. It's like, just add to it, make it more chaotic. First of all, I am so honored that Lisa and Leah asked me questions. Like they're my queens. Um, I had lit. So this is my obsession with housewives. I'm driving with my mom and my son and I see Lisa Rinna running like jogging down the street. I literally was like, guys, I'm like, it's Lisa Renna. And my mom's like, what? And I'm like, Lisa, I flagged her down. Literally my son was like, what is going on? Like looking at me like I'm, he's never seen me like that. And I'm like, Rhodes, it's Lisa Renna. It's Lisa fucking Renna. I watch Housewives <laughs> and Rhodes comes in the room and I have to turn it off because they're screaming at each other. We, yeah, it's I not know. something that we can watch together yet. Yet. Um, yes. But anyways, okay, Lisa. So the five people I would have dinner with, Living. I like that you specified because when you say living or dead, it becomes like whoever you choose, you sound like a moron because you could choose like Albert Einstein and you don't. Exactly. So I love yep. that it's only living. So I'm going to say I want Lisa Renna there for sure. Great. Um, I want Aunt Julia there for sure. I want Kara, my Bellatrix partner there for sure, because she's the best person to have at a dinner party. Let's make it fun. Anderson Cooper and Andy Cohen. Hello on New Year's Eve. <sighs> okay, well, if there's room for a seventh, I know Lisa Rinna doesn't like uneven numbers, but I would love to show up for this very fun dinner. And I want to say credit to you. I don't like asking people questions that are like, have to make them like scroll through a Rolodex in their head. And you did that marvelously. So when people ask me hypothetical questions, I like to give more realish answers than outlandish. So I try to be like, what would be like, like, I feel like maybe I could make that dinner party happen. Yeah, I, I mean, Lisa could... knows Andy, Andy knows Anderson, and I know Aunt Julia and Kara. So I don't know. I feel like that dinner could happen and Evan definitely come. Okay, manifest, manifest. I was just with Andy last week. So it's like, you know, we can all, this all connect. And you know what? Let's get Leah in there and make an even number. Yes, even numbers with Leah, please. Yes. Okay, last question before I let you go. Yes. I can't not ask you about a project that you have in the pipeline. It's the sixth film in Sony's Spider-Man universe. And it features a queen, Dakota Johnson, as well as another queen, Sydney Sweeney, and yes. yourself. You are a queen as well. Um, I imagine you can't say much, but can you say anything at all about this film? This is majorly exciting. I couldn't believe it. Like that was another one of one of those days. Like I, I was just going about my day. And I actually think I was having a really bad day that day. Like one of those, like what am I doing with my life as a mom? I'm not working. Like what's going on? You know, like we have those days where we're just like 
going through our life and our head in a bad way. <laughs> um, and I remember I like got a call and they were like, um, SJ, who's the director, wants to Zoom with you for the new Spider-Man movie. And I was like, what? And I remember being like, do you want me to, it's an audition. And they're like, no, it's a meeting. And I was like, wow, that's cool. Um, and so I met with her and they were just like, yeah, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a few days of work and, um, we'd love to have you. And I was just like, wow. Okay. This is so cool. I mean, I love Dakota Johnson. I love Sydney Sweeney. I love, and I, I I've been speaking of manifesting. I've been like, I really want to do something in the Marvel universe. And I don't know what that is. Um, and SJ, when we have the zoom, what I can tell you is I'm, I'm not a superhero. Some people maybe think she's a superhero, but I'm not like, I don't have supernatural powers. So I, I can tell you that it's really different, I think, than any of the other Marvel movies. Like it's it's super grounded. I love that it's so many, um, you know, great actresses. Like it's really female driven. And I just think it's not going to be what people expect. Um, so I'm really, really excited um, for everybody to see that. And by the way, I'm excited to see it because I... I only worked like a week on it. So there's so much that I haven't seen. And I did get to see like the storyboards and read the script. And and it, it's it's fantastic. It's so interesting you say that. I remember, not to name drop, but when I was having dinner with Coolidge recently and she was telling me how excited she was to watch The White Lotus because as you say, when you work on a project and you only do your scenes, you don't know what happens. And I mean, obviously you've read the script and whatnot, but like you too get to be, an, yeah, you get to be an audience member. So I can completely understand, especially when you're in a fucking Marvel movie, why you'd be like, I can't wait to see this. Yeah. All right. Well, I am so excited for that one and so excited for all of the myriad projects you have going on. I thank you so much for your time. Um, It's so nice to talk to you. I'm honestly such a big fan and I really appreciate the thoughtful questions and let's get a drink sometime. Yes, please. And congratulations on the show, but also this film is just awesome. I'm so excited Thanks. for it. Thanks. Thank you. I'm so glad you liked it. I appreciate that. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Have a great day. Bye. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut Up Evan is produced by me, Evan Ross Katz, with audio editing by Sophia Asmuth and social media by Griffin Dunn. Shout out to our Patreon subscribers for their financial support. And thank you to you all, the listeners, for helping us keep the lights on. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.